Thank you, band, and Christiana and Allie, especially, for sitting in with those uh, highly experienced professionals. <laughs> that's, that's a great band. We appreciate you guys, and thank you very much. I need to say a word about the uh, pancake breakfast. I know you uh, all enjoyed it, and if you, if you missed out, man, you just you got to pay better attention. But uh, I'm calling it the, mir- the, the miracle pancake breakfast. <laughs> Not, uh, not really related to the, um, the budget or the numbers or any of that. I'm calling it the Miracle Pancake Breakfast because of something that happened this week. About Thursday, I think it was Thursday, I got a phone call from the manager at Costco down here on Quincy. And uh, she said, uh, do you know a couple of men named LaRue and Bob? And of course I immediately said, no, I don't know that. <laughs> And she said, well, we got a crisis in the frozen food section here. There is a, a fist fight about to break out, and somebody's yelling about the quiches being too small, and somebody's saying, well, we don't need quiches, and blah, blah. So it's a miracle that we had that, that breakfast. That's all I can say. I want to throw out a name to you and see if you recognize it. If, you, if, the, if this name uh, is familiar to you and you know who it is, just, just wave at me. Salvatore Gianta. Anybody know that name? My son does, because he looked at my notes. <laughs> Salvatore Gianta. Now, let me, let me say it this way, and we'll show you a picture. Staff Sergeant Salvatore Gianta. Does that become familiar? Now, for those of you who maybe still don't quite know who that is, we'll see one more picture. That's Salvatore Gianta receiving the Medal of Honor from President Obama in November of this last year. He's the first living recipient of this medal since the Vietnam era. And he took that medal on November 16th of 2010. He's probably worth your time to Google Medal of Honor or Salvatore Gianta to read about his heroics. He did something uh, incredible in Afghanistan in 2007. And we don't have time to tell that story. But what I would like to uh, say to you or, or read for you is a quote from Salvatore Gianta. As he was about to receive that medal, or or before it took place, he said, If I'm a hero, every man that stands around me, every woman in the military, everyone who goes into the unknown is a hero. So if you think that's a hero, as long as you include everyone with me. Besides serving as an operational definition for humility, Salvatore's words remind us that every one of us, All of us here face times and places in our lives where we are challenged to act with courage and conviction to do the right thing, to be a hero. Now, I want to throw out another name to you, and I'm pretty sure you won't know this one. The name is Ahaikam. Ahaikam, I think I've tried to get the pronunciation right. I doubt that you uh, heard about this guy in Sunday school. But his story is told in the 26th chapter of Jeremiah. I want to read you the conclusion of that chapter, and hopefully it'll make you curious about the rest of the story. Jeremiah 26-24, Ahikam, son of Saphon, supported Jeremiah, and so he was not handed over to the people to be put to death. Now, hopefully that gets you thinking just a little bit, and we're going to look at the beginning of that chapter, so you see the story of Ahikim. But let's take a moment to ask God to um, open our hearts. 
Heavenly Father, who's always near, always near us. Here this morning, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see you and that we might see ourselves in your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story uh, we'll, we'll look at together is the chapter, this 26th chapter of Jeremiah. And if you have your Bible, please turn there or you can follow along in the screen. Let's just read the first few verses and then I'd like to fill in a little bit of background. Early in the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. It came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Stand in the courtyard of the Lord's house and speak to all the people of the towns of Judah who come to worship in the house of the Lord. And tell them everything I command you. Do not omit a word. Perhaps they will listen and each will turn from their evil ways. And then I will relent and not inflict on them the disaster I was planning because of the evil they have done. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. If you do not listen to me and follow my law which I have set before you, and if you do not listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have sent to you again and again, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and this city a curse among all the nations of the earth. The priests, the prophets, and all the people heard Jeremiah speak these words in the house of the Lord. But as soon as Jeremiah finished telling all the people everything the Lord had commanded him to say, the priests, the prophets, and all the people seized him and said, You must die. Why do you prophesy in the Lord's name that this house will be like Shiloh, and this city will be desolate and deserted? And all the people crowded around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. Let me just uh, call your attention to three specific names or words here that maybe help us with the background. It starts out by saying when jo jo uh, jo Jehoi Jehoiakim was king of Israel. When you read the prophets and when you read uh, the historical books in the Old Testament, often th there is a reference to the king at the time. And that's how we um, get an idea of what was going on. There seems to be a pattern that uh, unfolds in the Old Testament, especially in Kings and Chronicles, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And the, um, the state of, of the people of God seems to ebb and flow, go up and down like a roller coaster with the king. And so you'll read, so-and-so was the king of Israel and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he led the people to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so that king is down here. And then you'll read, so-and-so was the king, and he did what was right in the Lord's eyes. And he led the people to the ways of David the king. And so it would go up. And so it goes up and down and up and down like that all through um, the, the book of Kings and Chronicles. So Jehoiakim was the king. He was the son of jo Josiah. We'll talk about Josiah in just a minute. He was the king of Judah. Now, um, if you just know a little bit about Old Testament history, you know that the, the uh, nation of Israel had a civil war after Solomon, and it was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. When Jehoiakim became the king, the northern kingdom had already been annihilated. It had been destroyed as God's judgment by the Assyrians, and so they, they were gone. They were taken into captivity. They no longer really had a nation. The southern kingdom was corrupt, spiritually and politically, and it was apostate. Jehoiakim was a bad king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
Jeremiah came into, uh, into the role of prophet at that time, and Jeremiah had the worst job ever, telling people who did not want to listen that God had had enough. God sends him to the courtyard of the temple, the courtyard of the temple where people come in to worship the Lord. This is the, the, the center of worship and the center of politics for all of Judah in, in Jerusalem. And he says to, uh, the Lord says to Jeremiah, tell these people that this place, this incredible, massive, beautiful temple will become like Shiloh. What does that mean? Shiloh. Shiloh was the original spiritual and political center of Israel in the the early conquest of Canaan. The uh, Ark of the Covenant was there at Shiloh, and there was basically a tabernacle there. So um, Shiloh was where people went to worship the Lord. I'm going to read to you um, a description of what happened at at Shiloh from Psalm 78. In Psalm 78, um, rehearses the history of Israel and how God brought them uh, from Egypt into Canaan and how he settled the land before them and drove, drove out the people that were there in front of them. We pick it up in verse 55, and this is just me, it's not on the screen. He drove out the nations before them and allotted their lands to them as an inheritance, and he settled the tribes of Israel in their homes, but they put God to the test and rebelled against the Most High, and they did not keep his statutes. Like their ancestors, they were disloyal and faithless, as unreliable as a faulty bow. They angered him with their high places. They aroused his jealousy with their idols. When God heard them, he was furious. He rejected Israel completely. He abandoned the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent that he had set up among humans. He sent the ark of his might into captivity, his splendor into the hands of the enemy. He gave his people over to the sword. He was furious with his inheritance. Fire consumed their young men, and their young women had no wedding songs. Their priests were put to the sword, and their widows could not weep. So Shiloh had been the place of God's presence, the spiritual center of Israel. And it was destroyed because of the unfaithfulness of the people, because they followed after, other, uh, after idols, after other gods. And they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they angered the Lord. And so he destroyed Shiloh. Now here comes Jeremiah into the temple, and he says, this place will become just like Shiloh. The people that he was talking to understood what he meant. The the implications of his message were huge. The people of Judah had put absolute confidence in the fact that their nation would never be destroyed because... The temple was there. So they looked at what happened to Israel and they said, well, you know, the northern kingdom, they went into captivity, they were destroyed. That's never going to happen to us. Why? Because God's temple is here. Listen to what um, uh, Jeremiah says in in Jeremiah chapter 7. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave to your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me this, in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching you, declares the Lord. Go now through the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. And therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. The northern kingdom. The people of Judah were, Judah were convinced that the temple would never fall, that their nation was safe because of the temple being there, and so they cried out, this is the temple of the Lord. We're safe. We can do whatever we want to do as long as the temple is here. It was a bad game they played with the Lord, didn't it? It's a bad game to think that we are safe to do whatever we want to do and disregard what God has told us to do. The message that God gave to Jeremiah was, oh yes, this city can and will fall just like Shiloh. That's the reason there was such a strong reaction to Jeremiah's words. It was basically heresy and treason in their, in their minds. So it looked pretty bad for Jeremiah. But in the next section of Scripture, things, uh, things turn a little bit better for Jeremiah. Let's look at verses 10 through 19. When the officials of Judah, so that's the, the officials of the city, heard about these things, obviously there was a riot that was taking place, so they went up from the royal palace to the house of the Lord, and they took their places at the entrance of the new gate in the Lord's house. And then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and all the people, this man should be sentenced to death because he has prophesied against this city, and you've heard it with your own ears. Then Jeremiah said to all the officials and the people, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city, all the things that you've heard. Now reform your ways and your actions and obey the Lord your God. And then the Lord will relent and not bring the disaster he has pronounced on you. As for me, I'm in your hands. Do with me whatever you think is good and right. Be assured, however, that if you put me to death, you will bring the guilt of innocent blood on yourselves and on the city and on those who live in it. For in truth, the Lord has sent me to speak to you all the words that you are hearing. And then the officials, the city officials, and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, <laughs> the priests and the prophets, this man shouldn't be sentenced to death. He's spoken to us in the name of the Lord. And some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of the people, Look, there was a guy named Micah of Moresheth. He prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And he told the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become like a heap of rubble. And then Temple Hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. He said the same message that Jeremiah is saying. 
Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah put him to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring disaster he pronounced against them? We're about to bring a terrible disaster on ourselves. So the charge was, this man should die. Jeremiah says, I'm in your hands. Are you sure you want to do this? Because the message I give to you is from the Lord. And the officials say, no, no, we can't kill this man. He, all he's done is prophesy in the name of the Lord. So Jeremiah's life is spared, right? Not so fast. The chapter's not done yet. There's a wild card in all of this. The king, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was a more immediate and a more severe threat than anything else that uh, Jeremiah had faced. Look at this uh, in verse 20. And in most um, translations, it's a parenthetical statement. So it's almost like it's said on the side. Now Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath, Jerim, was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord. He prophesied the same things against this city and the land as Jeremiah did. The difference was he wasn't prophesying at the time of Hezekiah. He was prophesying at the time of Jehoiakim. So when King Jehoiakim and all his officers and officials heard his words, the king was determined to put him to death. But Uriah heard of it and fled in fear to Egypt. And King Jehoiakim, however, sent Elnathan, son of Akbor, into Egypt, along with some other men. And they brought Uriah out of Egypt and took him to the king, who had him struck down with a sword and his body thrown into the burial place for the common people. The king was capable of killing Jeremiah. And the king uh, was disposed to kill Jeremiah. We read later in uh, chapter 36 of Jeremiah that Jeremiah was banned from the presence of the king. He couldn't even go into the temple. And so the Lord gave him a message and he said, write it down on a scroll or have Baruch, your assistants, write it down on a scroll and take it to the king. And so Jeremiah did that and Baruch took it to the king and uh, the king's officials would read the message to the king. It was wintertime, and there was a fire going. And as the official would read one column from the scroll, the king would take a knife and cut that column and throw it into the fire. That's called contempt. And that's how he felt toward Jeremiah. And he gave orders after that to, for Jeremiah to be arrested, but Jeremiah was protected by the Lord. Jeremiah's life was truly still at risk. And that's where we enter this last verse. Furthermore, Ahikam, son of Saphan, supported Jeremiah, and so he was not handed over to the people to be put to death. Who was this guy? Have you ever heard of him? I mean, I didn't study him in my... I went to Sunday school from the time I was, like, in diapers. I never heard of this guy before. Who was he? This is the only real significant word we have about this guy and what he did. We do know this. We do know that he served in the court of Josiah, who was the father of Jehoiakim. Now, Je Josiah, maybe you will remember, I remember, because he was the king who became, he became king when? How old was he? When he was eight years old. That's how I remember him. He became the king when he was so young. And Josiah 
had wanted to restore the temple. He was a good king. He was a, a king that wanted to lead the people back into the worship of the Lord. And so he was restoring the temple, and he sent some officials there to collect some money and make sure that the people that were doing the work in the temple were, were paid properly. And while they were there, they found the word of the Lord. They found the, the law. Can you imagine? They found the Bible in the temple. It had been missing. It had been disregarded completely. And when they brought it to Josiah and they read it, he, he just ripped his robes and he said, we haven't been doing this. We haven't been following the Lord. We haven't been paying attention to what he wants us to do. And so Josiah started some incredible reforms. Ahikam was there as part of that entourage that found the scriptures and it participated in that revival in the land of Israel. That's the only thing we know about him. I can't help but be curious when I see one sentence about one person in the Bible. Why did God do that? I mean, God is the author of Scripture. So there's no accident. There's no, well, it was just a coincidence that his name was there. It's no postscript. God intentionally put Ahikam's name in the 26th chapter of Jeremiah and said that Ahikam saved Jeremiah's life. What's the point? Well, the point of that to me is this. God knows us by our name. You're not a statistic. You're not just a member of a church or a member of a society or a culture or a nation or a citizen of the world. To God, you are your name. He knows me as Dave Beatty. He knows you by your name. And what you do matters. It matters to God. <clears throat> it matters in terms of what will happen in your life and in this world. The things that you do matter. I've been talking to you really about one life. The message of a Ahikim answers the deep need in each of us for significance. We want to know that we're known. We want to know that we matter. But a Ahikam's story also says there's another message. And that other message is, if what we do matters, then we need to pay attention to what we do. I want to close with a poem. It's written by a guy who was a missionary um, over 100 years ago. His name was C.T. Studd. He was a missionary to China. And he wrote this poem, and it's not great poetry. Um, it's a little bit uh, archaic language, but it's a very powerful message to you and to me. I want to tell you just a little bit about this guy, though, C.T. Studd. When he was in China as a missionary, and he left um, his home in England to become a, a missionary, his father was very wealthy, and his father died and left him a huge inheritance. The day before he got the message um, in the mail that his father had left him this big inheritance, C.T. Studd was reading in the New Testament about the rich young ruler. You remember what the, that story? 
And the rich ruler came to Jesus and said, what should I do? And Jesus said, do this and do this and do this. And he said, I've done all of those things. And Jesus had compassion on him. And he looked at him and he said, just one more thing. Sell all you have and give it away. Now, C.T. Studd, this missionary in China, had read that. And the next day he received the message of his inheritance. You know what he did? He signed it all away. Every nickel. He gave it away in obedience to God. This is the poem that he wrote. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon it's fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasures on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, "Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You have one life. And God knows you by your name, and what you do with that life matters. Let's pray. Lord, we're challenged um, when we see people stand up and be heroic, but we know that you've called us to do that in our own lives every single day. And we pray, Lord, that you would convict us in our hearts to think about the time that we have to realize that we do have but one life and to know for certain that the only thing that's worth doing in this world is to do something for Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.